0: Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thanks so much, Peter, for that uh, generous introduction. I'm thrilled to be here uh, two of my favorite uh, institutions in the higher education uh, world today are the Thomistic Institute and um, the Elm Institute and its sister institutions. Uh, so I'm delighted that they're working together and happy to be here. Um, and I'm going to be talking about uh, The Religious Life, the book that I published, which um, I gather there's some copies up here. Um, that for free later, is that right, yes. Peter? Okay. So, so if you if you if you get up here fast enough, then you get a free copy of the book after the talk. But don't come up now because I'm talking. Okay. Um, so uh, the religious life, as I'm discussing it, um, has to do with uh, the particular forms of life um, lived by monks, nuns, hermits, uh, friars. Um, People who, and my work focuses on the Christian traditions, not out of, not because it's exclusive at all. There's also religious life in many other traditions, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, and there are even versions uh, in in literature connected to, to Judaism and Islam. Um, but Christianity is is the thing I know. Um, so in the Christian tradition, uh, there have been since the third century. Uh, AD, people who made special commitments to poverty, chastity, and obedience, um, who lived in sometimes solitude, sometimes in community, uh, but who had in common the renunciation of wealth, uh, the renunciation of sex or marriage, and the renunciation of um, uh, control over one's destiny, okay, so, so th- what, what might be entailed in a vow of obedience where you, you do as your director says. Um, so uh, I think that part of what motivates the book is that these ways of life, I think, are very alien to us, even those of us who are believers. Um, it's unclear what's attractive about them. Uh, I myself spent some time in such a community, three years. So um, I have felt the attraction and lived in the attraction and lived in that kind of life. and. Um, experienced quite a lot of what was wonderful about it and discerned out. And I miss it in many ways. So part of what the book is trying to do is to communicate something of what these ways of life mean and how they're not just a sort of niche historical happening, like something people did in the Middle Ages, but something which bears some some fruit for anyone who's thinking about a meaningful life, a happy life, a flourishing life. Um, So I think uh, the particular characters I'm going to talk about might seem strange, but I hope you'll see that the questions that they are after are questions that any of us could ask, um, even if we came up with quite different kinds of solutions or different kinds of answers to those questions. Okay. So the specific question I want to to talk about is uh, the question of the transience of things. So this is something that one hears in in spiritual life or in poetry or in wisdom traditions of various kinds that life comes and it goes it passes away everything dies everything is temporary um and this is um it's passed down through wisdom traditions in a variety of cases and part of what I want to think about is what supposing it's true as i think we have to accept in some way it is, what is the appropriate response for us? What does it tell us about our lives that we see this? Um, what, are the, what are the array of possible responses, assuming that this is true, that everything passes away, everything dies, everything to which one might commit oneself, devote oneself, and pursue is temporary. Okay? So to try to feel the force of that and to think about what it might mean. And um, I'm going to so um, I'm going to begin with a couple of stories. Is uh, as, as my custom? I like to use stories. I always think better with examples. Um, so one way that I'm uh, Kant. For those of you, are there philosophy people here? Probably some, one or two. Okay, uh, Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason says that examples are the go-karts of philosophy, but which he means they're like a cheap shortcut, like. They take you down the mountain too fast. Uh, but I, I, I think they're good. So anyway, we're going to start with examples. So we're going to begin with an example, uh, a woman named uh, Mother Wolada Petros. So she's an Ethiopian noblewoman of the 17th century. And she had four children in a row who died af- shortly after childbirth. After that, um, she has a hagiography, hey, a, a biography of her life, She's considered a saint in the Ethiopian Coptic church. After that, after these deaths of her children, she bore in mind the transience of the world. Her husband still loved her, but she no longer wanted to stay with him. She spent her nights in prayer and fasting and her nights in vigils. At holidays, she threw banquets to which all were invited, the poor and the wretched, along with the townspeople and the priests. When her husband left on a military campaign, she saw her chance. She gave away all her possessions, including all her jewelry, apparently 80 ounces weight of gold, and with two monks and three services, servants walked all through the night. They traveled several days to the monastic settlement at Zade, where Walada Petra shaved her head, took on a nun's cap, and swore to remain there for the rest of her life. So, her husband uh, learns of her departure. He's furious. This is a true story. It's, there's a wonderful book that, that came out a few years ago, a, an English translation of her life, from which I gathered this, uh, this incredible story. So, there's no reason to think this isn't a historical figure and that this isn't in broad outline true. Um, so, her husband learns of her departure. He's completely furious, and uh, he, gets, he sends an army after her. He's a nobleman, he has an army of his own. They destroy a town. Uh, the town that's near Zadeh. And they set out to arrest her to return her to her husband. Um, so so she sees how much damage she's causing, so she goes back to him for a time. Um, but she still, her heart is still in the monastery. So um, at this time, and this is part of the fascinating piece of Ethiopian history, which uh, I hadn't realized before reading this book. I've tried to learn more about it. So Ethiopia... Has one of the oldest christian communities in the world older than england or germany um it's you know the earliest of the apostles uh sell in ethiopia and they built a christian community that's that's very early nonetheless they are um uh proselytized by portuguese missionaries roman catholic missionaries so they're 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 eastern orthodox and or coptic orthodox and the um the Jesuit missionaries come from Portugal to try to convert them to the true Christianity. So you have Christians who are missionaries to other Christians, um, which t- to me is about the strangest thing you could imagine. Okay. That's a little historical side thing. So this is at the time when a lot of Petros was living. So these these Roman Catholic missionaries have arrived. Um, the king has been has adopted the new faith, the Roman Catholic faith, um, and the Coptic Orthodox patriarch who Wilada Petros follows is murdered. Um, so Wilada Petros's husband shows sympathy with these Roman Catholics. Wilada Petros stops eating and drinking. She stops beautifying herself. She lives as a nun in her husband's household. And finally, finally she, she's, she's kidnapped by the king and interrogated for a time. Finally, she's released to her monastic community. And she ends up um, gathering hundreds of followers. OK, so this is the, a little snapshot of this person's life um, that begins from a call, what we call a call or a vocation to the religious life. And that call was rooted in a perception of the transience of things. Um, and that perception of the transience of things is brought on by the deaths of her children. So when she perceives this transience, she's moved to sacrifice married life, wealth, privilege power everything that that matters from the worldly point of view and to give it all up to follow Christ so uh, I found a much later Orthodox nun a 20th century figure um, mother Maria Spotsova it's hard to pronounce um, see the party's out there but the real party is in here um, okay so uh, Mother Maria describes, so she also loses a daughter um, and and finds a vocation to the religious life afterwards. Oh, it's a nice soundtrack. (laughs) You thought religious life was boring, but this is what it really is like. It's exciting. Um, I don't know. It's going to be distracting, isn't it? Oh, no, they're traveling. It'll just be a minute. Okay. So, so while they're drumming, oh, my gosh, there's people in regalia and drums. That's so cool. Okay. Um, so Mother Maria has also lost a child. She's also a nun. She also finds her vocation to be a nun after, after this. <laughs> <laughs> after the death of her child. Um, and this is how she writes about it. For some, it is not even a question of grief but a sudden opening of gates into eternity, while the whole of natural existence has lost its stability and its coherence. Yesterday's laws have been abolished. Desires have faded. Meaninglessness has displaced meaning. And a different, albeit incomprehensible, meaning has caused wings to sprout at one's back. Into the grave's dark maw are plunged all hopes, plans, habits, calculations. And above all, meaning, the whole meaning of life. In the face of this, everything needs to be reexamined or rejected against falsehood or corruption. So for her, for Mother Maria Skotzova, grief reveals the truth about the world. It reveals the nature of things. Um, and that nature of things that it brings light is just, I think, this thing that Willada Petros describes, the transience of things the fact that the things that we care about, the things that we treasure, the things that we pursue, all of them pass away at one time or another. So um, again, these women, each of them raised this question, and Mother Maria very directly, if this is true, what's the the appropriate response? If the truth about life is transience, what's the appropriate response? So. in stories of vocation, so stories of people who leave everything for the religious life, which are, um, they sort of run all through Christian literature um, in every tradition. In vocation stories, success is as common as grief in inspiring this kind of disruptive con- discontent with ordinary life. So it's not just, say, the loss of a child, your hope for the future but also sometimes the achievement or the the holding in view of everything that one actually seems to want. So here, there's a beautiful example, um, also from, I guess, a little earlier, the 16th century, Teresa of Avila's account of the foundations of her monasteries. Teresa of Avila, the great nun and mystic um, and author of numerous mystical treatises, Um, she also wrote an account of the foundation of her monasteries. And she tells a story about another noble woman with a religious vocation. Uh, so this woman, her name is Doña Casilda. She's beautiful. She's the heir to a large fortune. Um, her two older siblings have gone into religious life. They've become monks or nuns. So the rest of her, her family is quite anxious that she not do the same thing. So they, they betroth her to a man when she's 10 or 11 years old, very young even in those days. Um, But something interesting happens, which is that she falls passionately and deeply in love with her fiance. So Teresa writes the following about Doña Casilda's life. She had been spending a very happy day with her betrothed, whom she loved with an intensity rare for a child of her age, when suddenly she became very sad, for she realized that the day was over and that all other days would come to an end in the same way. So there's a long story of similar drama to of Petras of how this young woman ends up in a convent. In this case, she's warring with her parents, not with her husband. But um, she she tries to join three times. The second time, she's being kept, more or less, as a prisoner of her family. And she runs a gambit where she sends her mother. Her mother goes to buy a, ma- they're at a church, the mother goes off to, pay, to buy a mass for someone, and the, the nanny is distracted by something. It goes to confession, I think. So then Doña Cotilda just puts her shoes up and runs for the convent, um, and runs and runs and runs and gets there before anyone else does, and gets the habit, and just manages to become a nun. So these are, these are women who um, have an incredibly intense desire to live this monastic life, a life where um, none of their advantages are put to use, so they leave wealth, um, uh, family, power, position. In this woman's case, love uh, for this way of life. Um, so, and these stories—they're—they're—they're they're, they're highly dramatic. They're, I'm giving you only two. There are many, many more, and the attachment to. Um, a vocation to a call to the religious life is strong enough to break every human bond. So the bond between you and your fiancé, the bond between you and your husband, in the case of Petros, uh, the bond between you and your parents. Um, there's a wonderful story. Thomas Aquinas, who has a special relationship with a Thomistic Institute, um, comes from one of the wealthiest families in Europe. He's meant to become a Benedictine monk, and he studies with this new community that's radical and weird. They like the um, I don't know, the occupy Wall Street or the democratic socialists of, of, the, of the monastic world. Um, that's terrible. I shouldn't be trying to make myself relevant. But anyway, they're very radical, weird people. Um, and uh, Thomas is just enchanted in- with them. And he, he, he decides to join them. He's on, on his way to Paris, to their seminary. And his family kidnap him. Uh, and lock him up in the house for a year, trying to keep him from join this, joining this community. And you know, finally, he either escapes or they finally give up or whatever happens, but he finally makes it. So it's, again, just one more story of someone who has everything um, from our point of view, from the worldly point of view, from the point of view of their society, but they throw it all away for this other thing, this thing that we're calling the religious life. Um, so in this particular talk, I'm thinking about what they're leaving behind. Like, What's motivating this more than what exactly they're getting? I'm going to leave that as an open question for the end of the talk. Um, and I think that's a little awkward, because they're obviously, I think, if you ask yourself the, the question, the central question, which is, what's motivating these people? What, is, what would drive a person to give up everything that they had to um, live? In complete incomplete separation, renouncing wealth and all these other things, every other earthly good, um, what motivates them? Well, they're acting like people in love, right? That's one of the reasons the stories are so great. Um, they sound like romantic stories. Uh, we've all been familiar from literature with stories about people who leave everything for you know, their beloved. Um, but in this case, the beloved is not apparently a human being, but something eternal and transcendent. Um, so it's this desire for the eternal and the transcendent, which is this passionate love even for the eternal and transcendent, which strikes me as mysterious, but it's also at the core, I think, of of these particular stories. So have, you have on the one hand a perception of transience, perception of futility in ordinary life, and on the other... Uh, intense, passionate desire for the eternal, the transcendent, um, and that's a diminishment in some ways of the objects of, of desire for a Christian life. But it's it's still s- there's something significant about that I, I want to try to focus in on. So what is this insight? Okay, that if we take Doña Casilda, the young Spanish nun, that provokes her to give up her beloved. She realizes after a wonderful day, one of these spectacular days that you never want to end, that it's going to end just like all the other days. Um, So she sees a life dedicated to romantic love, marriage, and children as in some way futile. That is, it comes to an end. Um, and this, again, is surprising to us because I think we, we prize romantic love quite highly in our culture. Um, romantic love is something that teenagers long for, the elderly long for, in the middle, it's, there's this kind of constant tumult around it. Um, there's another beautiful film, for those of you who like film um, or stories like this. Um, it's a Polish film called Ida. It's from maybe 2013. I see someone nodding. Um, and Ida is a young woman who is, there's a, there's a huge background, I've already spent too much time on the stories, so I have to, I have to give you some philosophy, philosophical payoff soon, but um, the stories are so good. So she's, she's I'll leave it a lot of the details, but she's caught between um, a call to a convent and a desire to go back into the world. In the middle of it, she has an affair with a young jazz musician. She falls in love with a young jazz musician. They spend the night together, they wake up, and, um, and she's like, so what happens now? You know? He's like, well, we go get breakfast and, you know, maybe hang out with a band again. She's like, yeah, and after that, what do we do? You know, well, after that, we, you know, maybe we, maybe we get married or have a couple of kids or get a dog. You know? And after that, so she keeps asking this question. After that, after that, after that, after that. And it's not a question really about what the, her schedule is going to be. It's a question about what the point of that kind of existence is. That is, there's a sense in which, because all of these things somehow come to an end, that there's a futility in the whole endeavor. Um, and I find this, honestly, philosophically, a little counterintuitive. So part of what you're hearing in this talk, or if you read the chapter about this, is me struggling to understand this particular point of view and trying to think my way into it. Uh, so you can tell me, in the question period, how well I've succeeded or not. Um, So um, we have in Willada Petros The Transience of Things, Tonya Casilda, this day will end like all the others, or in Ida, after that. After that? What happens after that? Um, These are inquiries into the meaning of life. And encounters with the transience of things. So it seems to them that even the most wonderful experiences happen in a sequence, one after another, each coming to an end, and so they can't qualify as goods that make a life worth living. Now, here's the question it was why? Why would the recognition of transience of things make life not worth living? Um, One common response that one hears, right, so it's also mysterious because death is a fact that we're all aware of, and yet um, we continue despite death, despite the destruction of empires, the structures of whole civilizations, the destruction of lives, uh, all kinds of destruction that we know from history and from our own experience, human activity just continues on. We continue doing it. We're not deterred. So there's a counter... um, there's a set of counter-evidence to this intuitive thought that, that everything is transient, and so there's no point in anything. We maybe should despair, but we don't, and so we just keep doing things. So that creates another mystery. If this is a truth about the way things are, why don't our lives reflect that? Why do we keep on doing things? So one, um, one sort of cliche that it's a cliche, but it also it's one of these splendid cliches that... Um, uh, can, can be um, formulated and reformulated by quite sophisticated thinkers in, as a response to exactly this kind of problem. And that response is to, that we should live in the moment. Okay. So philosopher Kieran Zetia up at uh, MIT has a wonderful piece on the, the midlife crisis and, he, and it also became a book. That's what he argues in the end the response to these kinds of sense of utility is. It's to live in the moment, to treasure each experience. Uh, And I think there must be some truth in that. Uh, It's too common, it's too luminous a cliche for it not to be true. But it seems to me it faces two difficulties. One is it clashes with the experiences of our protagonists, the women that we were telling stories about. So Dona Casilda, for instance, she has a wonderful experience. She savors every second of it. But the fact that it ends still matters to her. So there's a bit of a tension in that. It doesn't seem like it's consoling to her to think, oh, well, there'll be many moments like this. We'll just keep enjoying them one after another. Just keep drinking them up. Um, so, uh, but the other problem that I think is in a way more serious is that it seems to be a counsel, um, from, like, for the, for the successful, for the people who are wealthy in the goods of life. Um, so living in the moment doesn't seem appropriate if your life is disfigured by suffering, um, if your life is a, a constant struggle uh, or encounter with pain. Um, there's something that seems a bit patronizing about it if you, if you imagine lives which are seriously um, challenged, as far as the human goods are concerned. It doesn't seem like the right kind of advice to say live in the moment, even though there might, again, even in that case be, be truth. So one of the things I think that's distinctive about uh, Christianity, and I think you find it also versions of it also in other religions, is that there's something about suffering itself which offers a good, which can be appreciated and grasped in the moment. But if you don't have something, some way of making sense of that, it seems to me, the challenge is serious. OK. So we've, we've raised a problem. Things are transient. Things die. All of our projects come to an end. Um, all of our experiences exist one after the other. They each end. Our loved ones die. Um, our projects are finite. We've looked at one possible response. Okay, We should live in the moment. We've raised some difficulties about it. Not conclusive, I don't think, but questions about whether that's right. Um, so um, it, it's, it's worthwhile just trying to dig in a little bit deeper to how to respond. So one, um, we could ask ourselves the question um, of what exactly, why exactly does the transience of things make life meaningless? What is it about it that makes it meaningless, or that threatens meaninglessness? Uh, So the philosopher Thomas Nagel has a very famous essay called The Absurd, where he argues that it's not the case. That is, that if something matters, it doesn't matter more for lasting longer. Um, And that the reason why we end up with these puzzles about the meaning of life is that we can always ask more questions. We can always ask questions of justification. You can always ask why. Um, why do that? And then, well, we're doing. Well, why am I giving this lecture? Well, to help people learn. And why am I help people? Why am I trying to help people learn? Well, because um, I don't know. I'm, I'll, I, I'm trying to think of because they'll be, become better human beings. Well, what makes a human being better? Well, having a certain kind of wisdom or broad perspective on life. Well, why should you have some kind of wisdom or broad perspective on life? You can run these questions all the way back in just the same way that you can run the question that Ida asks, um, what happens after that, all the way back. And there's something for Nagel about our ability to formulate questions which generates an illusion of meaninglessness, but doesn't actually make anything meaningless. Because each of those things which we valued, um, the children of Woloda Petros, the the day with the beloved that Dona Casilda experiences, they are genuinely really good. They don't become not good because they pass away. So it's a very powerful, very famous argument. Um, and I think the problem with it, I want to say, is something like this. When we love something, it seems to me, we want it to last. It seems to be intrinsic to the, to the meaning of love. So, and that's true for a person. It's true for a project. It's true for an activity. Um, Whatever it is that we're holding as a core value for our lives, as constituting what matters most about it, as the end for which we're um, acting or against which, around which everything is organized, whatever that thing is, if it's something that we love, we want it to last. And our desire is for its eternity in some way. And the the source of the grief of life, and the disappointment of life, and the sense of transience is just the fact that that's not actually true. So I want to suggest as an alternative to someone like Nagel that the fundamental difficulty about the meaning of life is that we may want something most profoundly. The thing we may want as um, whatever it counts as meaning, happiness, flourishing, eudaimonia, that thing that we want more than anything, that thing is something which we desire to last. How long? Eternally. We never want it to die. It's never enough time. Um, and so my thought is that this is the 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 fault of Nagel's view, and this is also the um, the challenge that transience presents to uh, the meaningfulness of life. That is, we desire more than. Any- our sense of what a meaning is, our sense of what happiness is, is something that will last. That's the way our desires work. When it fails, we're miserable um, or we grieve. And wh- what happens, why is it that we keep busily pursuing our projects anyway? Because we hide from this fact. Okay? We keep replacing objects one after the other, right? Instead of, um, we, we're not, we're, we're failing to, um, if I How do I put this? If I I change my view about what happiness is once every five years or once every 10 years, I'll never notice that I didn't actually get the thing forever that I wanted to make me happy. So I think that's something like what happens to us. That's why we have this endless pursuit of endeavors that go one after the other, despite the fact that what we really want is something that will last forever and despite the fact that none of our projects and none of our goals can suit it. Okay, so I raised a question with some stories about the transience of life and the thought that one might be passionately in love with what's transcendent and eternal. That was my interpretation of these characters. I then looked at the question of why, why it is that we think that the transience of life makes life meaningless. We talked about Nagel's point of view, which is that, in fact, it doesn't because there are very meaningful, important, valuable things which last but a short time. Um, and then my response to that, which is to say that, nonetheless, we want those things to last forever. It's not that somehow they lose all their value if they don't, but they lose their value as sources of meaning for a whole life. They lose their value as organizing principles for happiness. If they are transient and if they pass away. Um, so that's the overall account of what my, my view is about this. Um, and um, there's quite a lot of other examples and nuances and so on. Um, but let me just end by um, looking at um, the um, Sorry. Um, Going back to our original stories. So we began by asking what it was that drove Woloda Petros, Dona Casilda, Mother Michelle Tsova, et cetera, to leave everything for the sake of um, and renounce power, privilege, et cetera. Um, what, what, What is the thing that they're trying to organize their life around? And I suggested that it was the eternal and the transcendent in some sense. But I think that's still a bit mysterious. That is, it's not obvious without some more filling out of what this way of life is or what the eternal and transcendent is. It's not obvious what really motivates a person like this. In a way, I've made them too abstract. And I've left out the core, some sense of the core of what they're really interested in. So I don't want to keep talking forever and rambling on. So I think I've presented some arguments in a certain set of sequence. So um, why don't I stop there and take